We all know 1776 is the greatest year in history, and we all know why. It's because we won, America was created, the Declaration was signed, and as Americans, that's pretty much all we know, right? But there was a lot more that happened in 1776 that helped shape the modern world that we are living in now. And my guest, Andrew Wilson, wrote the book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. It is a tremendous book. It is an excellent look at seven different ways, seven different, I don't know, periods, right? He uses the acronym WEIRDER to outline how industrialization, romanticism, ex-Christianity, values were established, the Enlightenment, all these different things contributed to the world that we live in now. It's a fascinating conversation. It's an even better book. Check it out right here on The Chris Spangle Show after these words. We run on the value for value model here on The Chris Spangle Show and the We Are Libertarians podcast network. That means do you get value out of the show? Do you learn something that helps you sound smarter when talking with your friends? Do you feel a little bit more connected to the world and inspired to do something a little bit differently? Well, then please give some value back. And the best way that you can do that is through our Patreon. You can go to supportcss.com or patreon.com slash libertarians, and you can join our Patreon. Not only do you support the program and the entire We Are Libertarians podcast network by helping pay all of the bills, you're also going to get ad-free shows. You're going to get early releases, sometimes months in advance in terms of episodes that haven't been released in the public feed yet. You'll also be able to get the full archives, the full RSS feed of all the past episodes and there's even a tier that you can come on the show or you can have your name mentioned every episode like i am about to do right now thank you so much to our 100 a month members especially vincent Pykel, matthew durbin jason doolittle christy avery and our good friend reinhold thank you so much for supporting us and we appreciate everybody that considers making a contribution today andrew wilson thanks so much for joining me Thank you for having me, Chris. Great to be with you. I finished the book this morning, Remaking the World. I've been working on it for the last couple months. I saw you at Gospel Coalition, and I watched your speech where you talked about the weirder world in your book. I was absolutely blown away by it. And oh, thank you. I've listened to probably like 10 interviews, <laughs> and your, <laughs> your podcast, Post-Christian, is great as well. So I'm very excited to talk to you today because this was my favorite book of the year by far. Oh, now I'm very glad I came on the show. Yes, exactly. That, thank you. I have more butt kissing. We'll have to get to it later. But I just tell us about the premise of the book first before we let's set the table of the conversation. What is Remaking the World about? So it's about two things, really. It's about it's initially a sketch of the post-Christian West as it is now and trying to integrate what makes the world distinctive from a combination of the ideas we share and the material circumstances we live in our wealth our technology our stuff so it, partly it's a sketch of the modern world to a, help particularly christians find our way and find our feet in that modern world and show how unusual the modern world is at least the modern west is relative to most people alive today and most people in history the other thing it is which is most of the book is an attempt to tell a story about how the world became like that through the lens of one particular year 1776 which provides us with an origin story for the post-Christian West that we're living in now. And so most of the book is that second bit. And then there's really a, th a third bit at the end, which is how as Christians do we respond to that world and live in it wisely. But that's really the, the heart of it is this sort of is a story about how seven interlocking transformations have shaped the modern West 
and that all of them can be traced back to key events in 1776. Yeah, I feel bad for the person who had to index this book because you know, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me. I'm very relieved. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I had to pay them triple over at Crossway because <laughs> there is so much that happened in 1776 that I did not realize. Being an ignorant American, of course, one thing happened in 1776. You better, an ignorant Brit thinks no things happened in that year. So you're one ahead of us. So, you know, talking about intellectual history and the history of machines and religious history and political history and democracy, and there's so many different things that happened, and you do such a great job of making it a narrative and following along, but you, you, you put it in a succinct way. You are a pastor, so you preach sermons, and you all are very good at putting, you know, here's the four points, and I have alliteration for it, and that is reflected in the book that's very helpful, but let's talk about the weirder framework. What is the weirder framework, and how did that kind of elaborate itself through the book yeah so i've stolen five sevens and so most of it is that the, the acronym weird w-e-i-r-d is an acronym that was introduced by a psychologist at harvard about 12 14 years ago and has since appeared in the writings of other people who have popularized it including john height and, and then joseph henrich himself who, who came up with it and it stands for western educated industrialized rich and democratic and that five-fold description particularly of the sort of material and structural realities of the modern West has been a really helpful tool in psychology. And it's a way of saying, and partly there's a joke, obviously, which is that the people who are Western are the weird ones, that most people in the world don't share the same perspectives on family and culture and food and taboos and sex and identity and business and all politics, all sorts of things, uh, which anyone has ever traveled outside of their own country will know. So in fact, in your country, you probably just travel from one bit to another and you find you... My daughter yesterday on the trip to Ohio goes, what's different about Ohio from Indiana? And I said, you know. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to say I, I wouldn't know. I certainly can't tell the difference, but I'm sure that there are parts of the US where you travel and you think, yeah, Boston and Birmingham, very different. They feel like almost different countries. And obviously I'm in Europe and that's much more true here, but particularly if you get on a plane to India or Yemen or Vietnam or whatever. So that acronym was, is something that's quite become quite mainstream now. What I did was to add two letters at the end. So I said that the world is also is ex-Christian and romantic, so to make the acronym weirder, because I wanted to talk a bit about the foundational ideas that have shaped the modern West, not only the more material structural ones. And so the combination then is to say that there have been these seven transformations which have made the world obviously very Western-influenced, educated, with a high premium on education, whether or not you went to university yourself, you know that it's valued and prestigious and the state will pay for you to be educated a lot, even in stuff that you don't really need to know for it to live a normal life as a citizen. We're industrialized, which is, you and I are talking like this on a kind of online platform using technology neither of us understand. We are rich. We've got enough to live on by a long way. We've got lots of surplus spending. In fact, we spend more time thinking about non-essentials than essentials when it comes to our budgets. We're democratic. We think choice is vital, not just in politics, but in many other arenas of life. And we are ex-Christian in the sense that our culture has tried to leave Christianity behind, but is still very much living under its shadow. And we're also, we could talk a bit more about this later, maybe romantic in the sense that our vision of art and identity and, and selfhood is very shaped by the romantic movement of the late, 19th, late 18th and early 19th century. So that's a sort of summary of what I think the weirder world is that I'm trying to describe. 
Yeah, I found ex-Christian and romanticism a little challenging. I've heard the terms. Obviously, there's a rash of great books on post-Christianity out. But yeah, I think if I said to the average person, we live in an ex-Christian world, they'd go, what are you talking about? Especially here in America, right? I'm in Indiana. This is a red state where, you know, when you look at things like the Dobbs decision, oh, politicians are only using their religion to... So when you go back to Benjamin Franklin in the book and the Declaration of Independence as a sign of an ex-Christian world, people go, look at the 60s. That was way more, right? So can you explain what ex-Christian or post-Christian means and why it started back in 1776? Yeah, so to take the first bit of that first, I think, but first I'd concede the point that I think that even within the West, there are places that feel a lot less post-Christian than others. I would say that in, in many ways, red state US is the the least post-Christian bit of the post-Christian West, at least in, in the experience of ordinary people. And so it's probably the one part of the modern Western world where it doesn't feel as secular, as post-Christian as, as much of the rest of the world is. But that even that is changing even in real time, isn't it? That is probably less true now than it would have been if we'd had this conversation even two years ago, let alone five, 10, 15. So I think what, but I don't mean, ex-Christian doesn't mean no one is a Christian anymore. What I, the analogy I use is when we talk about people um, like post-industrial landscapes. So you might, might have been to a sort of downtown area of a city where they try to, this is very post-industrial because the, what he used to be, these big factories with huge chimneys, and red brick, brrr, it looks like something out of Dickens. And they've reinvented it to that everything's, wood-burning stoves and vegan restaurants and cafes and urban gardens and that sort of vibe, which is when people say this is like a post-industrial landscape. And I and of course I'd say what that means is not industrialization is done and we're no longer industrialized, but actually industrialization is so secure that we've baked in the good bits and said we don't actually need factories now because we've got enough power, we've got enough calories, so we can Veganism can be a lifestyle choice, which most people wouldn't be able to afford to make because there aren't enough calories or wood-burning stoves or a lifestyle choice because actually we're not going to run out of heat because we've still got central heating. And I think that's the sense in which the West is post-Christian. The, the, the contribution of Christianity to our moral and ethical imagination feels so secure that we feel like we, it's baked in and we will always have, so we think anyway, values of compassion and charity and pity and consent and human dignity and human rights and equality, which come from Christianity, but they're so obvious to us all now, hence Ben Franklin's self-evident rather than sacred and undeniable, which is what Jefferson originally wrote. They're so obvious that we don't need Christianity to support them. We've got the fruit, we can get rid of the roots. And that's the sense in which I think the West is post-Christian. And and that's true even in Indianapolis. It's probably less true there than it is in London, and it's probably less true in London than it is in some other parts of the West, but it's still, I think it's true to a greater or less degree nonetheless and becoming truer by the year. Yeah. So this kind of uh, opens up the, on the right, there's the theonomists who say we need to return to Christendom. Then on the left, we need to reject Christianity. When you're, you're articulating like Christian values, right? But I don't think people identify those as Christian values, right? These are just humanist values. These are the right way to live. These are the the science is real science. I live in downtown. We're surrounded by that. You articulated it as Protestant pagans. So can you talk about how Christianity has contributed to 
what Glenn Scrivener called the air we breathe, your co-host on your mm-hmm. podcast, and the values that we've picked and choose, chosen, excuse me, to be Christian values and live out. Yeah. So I like, Glenn's done great work on this and, and he's, a lot of his work is popularizing the work of others like Larry Sedentop and Tom Holland, who really argued that a lot of the things that we take as being, again, to quote Franklin's word, self-evident, are themselves really Christian beliefs that are not self-evident at all. Certainly not self-evident in the more, I think they meant something slightly different in the 18th century, but the way that we use that word now, that's certainly not obvious to everybody. As we we found out to our cost in the years immediately after 9-11, people are not naturally democratic or naturally secular, all sorts of things. They are Christian beliefs. They're beliefs that have come out of not just out of the Bible, but out of the influence of Christian society over a very long period of time. And so when we say human, in fact, Glenn's got a lovely line where people say, I'm a secular humanist. He says, well, which one? Because you're either secular or humanist. You can't be both of those things. Or Because a materialist humanist, again, you're like, are you a materialist or a humanist? Because if you're a materialist, humanism isn't a belief that matter is everything there is. Humanism is the opposite. It's a belief that there is something uniquely dignified about a human being, that you should care for them even if they're not useful to you, and even if they might even be trying to attack you, but they have rights and they have dignity because they are human, which is not a materialist view at all. And I think that's the sense in which we're very Christian in our understanding of human beings in particular. But when I, you're right, what, what I then try to do, my equivalent of that is to talk about Protestant paganism, which is an attempt to say that the two spiritual impulses that most reflect the modern West as we see it, as you see the yard signs, as you see the things on coffee shop billboards, or the, just the things people print on t-shirts, or shout at gigs and everybody goes there, or put on Twitter and everybody clicked it, they reflect Protestant paganism. They reflect a mixture of a spiritual a pagan view of reality, that is, there is only the, the sacred is all within this world. There's no transcendence. But a Protestant view of morality and a Protestant view of ethics or the imperative of how you should live, and even the fact that people say things like, in this house, we believe love is love, kindness is everything, black lives matter, all these things, which are all true and they're all on, taken as they stand. They're all Christian beliefs, really. You might not agree with the policy implications, but they're all true on the face of it. But people say them in a very Protestant way. They, even literally to the point of writing a creed. And they say, we believe X, Y, Z. That's a very, it's like justification by faith. It's like a way of saying, these. I am defined by my belief statements. You think, what could be more Protestant than that? So there is a Protestantism mixed with paganism. And I try and tell the story about how those things meshed in the years after the Reformation, and particularly in 1776, to create this kind of weird fusion we have where people are very vague and mushy about whether there is a God or not, but are very firmly convinced about the things you should believe about other human beings. And that is a, a fascinating and very weird, in the sense I mentioned earlier, development. Yeah, getting to choose your own beliefs as, a, as opposed to living to su- survive, like we're not growing turnips in the backyard <laughs> to, no, to eat. No, not even in Britain. <laughs> yeah. What I love about the book is that you don't take a position of judgment on these things, for instance. You articulate the intellectual history. You didn't try to say, look, I'm a Christian pastor and this is the way that it ought to be and here's what scripture says. And some may hear that as an insult, but I don't mean that as an insult at all. I, I think that if I could hand this book to somebody who is left or right on any extreme, in the middle, confused, not knowing what's going on, and have uh, an understanding of, oh, this is why humans, thanks to Rousseau, think everything just starts with me. 
because of romanticism, right? Or you, one of the books that I found helpful, I swim in the American libertarian right, which has been greatly influenced by the European right since Trump has come into office. And that thinking is largely the West is superior. The West is the best because of its culture. We're the best, sadly, and I don't agree with this because of racial identity. Look at these other cultures that have not succeeded. And you go into detail kind of how the West succeeded. And it wasn't just ideas. It was so many other factors. And you don't, Todd, you obviously disagree with it. And you say that in the book, but I think you... I could hand this to somebody in my family that I'm thinking of right now that kind of swims in those streams and they go, oh, okay, this is challenging that idea of white supremacy. Was that an intentional choice? Look, I want to write a book that is broad and open, or did that just come about organically? Good question. I think it is deliberate. I had a, dis- I had a, this is going to be name dropping here, but I had, so I had a conversation with Tom Holland as I was starting the project on this exact question. Do I do this? As a Christian pastor who says, who tries to integrate biblical insights as I go, and actually from, from all of the other books I've written are more like that, um, with one exception. I've done another apologetics book. But they're basically, I just want to do every Sunday. I get up and I, I read the Bible, I preach it, that's what I do. But with, but I, do I do that? Or do I try to tell a story that can almost stand on its own as a work of history and come clean up front? I don't want to be like sneaky Christian who pretends I'm not. And to them, that's no good if you're a pastor anyway. And Tom Holland was very helpful. He just said, no, I think that I think you should do the second one. You should write a history book that on its own terms is historical, but you need to be honest up front about the fact that you're coming at it as a Christian, but then everyone's got an assumption of some sort, and this is yours. And I found that really helpful advice, and that's what I've tried to do. So that's probably where it came from. But you're right. I do try in some ways to – I think this is, is quite – I guess it's a fashion in writing at the moment, but people are trying to tell stories that out-narrate – are the big stories. They're, they're trying to say, here's a story that encompasses that other narrative, but tells a story that's either more rigorous or convincing or more sweeping and compelling and hopefully inspiring in places. That it subsumes the other story. And white supremacy is a very good example. That was a very deliberate attempt to write a chapter that is not saying, here's why you shouldn't be a racist, but simply says, if we understand our origins rigorously, we will see that we owe an awful lot of, and I say we here as a white London, but white Western guy. A couple of English-speaking guys, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, 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 but the, the reason why the city I'm in and the city you're in speak the language we do and have many people who look like you or look like me in them is not because of, which certainly not because of any genetic advantages that we possess, and it's not even primarily because of cultural ones. It's off, a lot of it is because of geographical ones. And so I try and dig into that story in some detail, particularly in the, the first of the seven chapters, but actually come back to it on the, on the ones about how we became rich and techno- technological advances as well, because my city is very near a lot of coal fields and it's got open access to the ocean and it's got navigable rivers and it's got lots of wood and it's got, lot, it's got the farm animals that live in this part of the world can be easily domesticated. And if I lived in Australia in the 18th century, I, I good luck domesticating wallabies, kangaroos, koalas and getting them to plow your fields for you. It's just ridiculous. And so many of it, much of it is actually contingency, but there are some crucial ideas in the mix as well. And it's important to give them their due, but many of those are the products of Christian thought as well. So it's trying to dig into what makes the West what it is, partly so we just understand it better and because we're going to live here, and partly because I think as a pastor, I'm 
I am a pastor in a black majority church in a very diverse city in which I'm continually thinking about how the claims of how the history of the church, the claims of scripture and political and cultural challenges today can be integrated when it comes to issues of race or whatever. So I'm, it's a very pressing issue for me. And it would be strange for me to write a, a book like this without thinking about it. But I didn't want to do it as a sort of moralistic exercise. I wanted to do it through deep history, which yeah, I, I hope is what's happened. So how did you end up at history? And why is history so powerful and vital in this moment? I think how I ended up at history, I probably always enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it at school. I had a good teacher who's still a good friend of mine. I went to, uh, I studied history for my first two years at Cambridge and then changed to theology. I love reading right now. Like, oh, this isn't a setup, but it just, I've got a history book on my desk right here, which I'm reading about the origins of the first world war. Like right now, so I love this. I love the subject. I think the move I made to the church in London, I just described and probably having to see the history of the church through a very different pair of lenses than the one that I had grown up with as a white evangelical was an important part of that too. But I think that there's a more strategic reason for writing history in our day as well. And if I can just use this example, even just, I think, was it yesterday? I tweeted, somebody had tweeted a, a line from Remaking the World, this book, that said in, in an era, something like, in an era of instant news, amnesia is baked in and amnesia has consequences. Someone just tweeted it and tagged me, so I noticed it. And I paired, I put it on Twitter with that chart that was doing the rounds a couple of days ago, where The Economist did a series of polls in America of the number of people in each generation who think the Holocaust is either a myth or exaggerated. It's, the it's a significant thing that America's wrestling with that's finally yeah. now being talked about. It was staggering. And I think as an English person, I'm not very often horrified by things. I know a lot of Americans. I feel like I keep my finger up relatively on the pulse of what's going on. But I was really shocked about the number, particularly of under 30s, who think the Holocaust has been either blown out of proportion or made up. I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is like, the, you're, these are literally beliefs that are Ill, still illegal in many European countries. You can go to jail for teaching them. And this is like a one in five Americans under 30, if the polling's correct. And it was just the pairing of those two things, right? the argument for why history is so important in the, a book I'd written that had nothing to do with before Israel Gaza, had, obviously this round of the war had kicked off. And yet here it is proving strikingly relevant to something that's happening today. And that to me is probably quite a good example of why you, you have to keep narrating history. And I didn't write it for that purpose at all, but I think it's another good example of why pastors and people intellectually concerned Christians should be telling the his and this is what the bible does all the time the prophets say we're going to tell you the story of god's dealings with his people so you don't get hoodwinked by another narrative that isn't accurate that's what the book of deuteronomy is is what in many ways one and two samuel one and two kings one and two chronicles there's loads of the psalms like loads of them. so i think that's where christians have to be those who whether they're nerds for it or not like i am would actually faithfully tell our history so as to protect ourselves from the distortions that might come from left or right over what exactly it is yeah, it's something that I started to see. I'm mostly almost done. There's, I'm doing an episode based on the plot by Will Eisner, which is about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Oh. And when you understand that a, a Russian troll basically working for the secret services was trying to fight liberalism by using the Jews as a punching bag, it set the template for all of these other conspiracy theor theories that we see so often on our social media feed. It's... I said, look, ideas don't have a lot of influence because of the weather and other things, but 
one point that I was really driven home by your book is that ideas do have consequences, that they really do influence us. And one person in 1776 can have these massive wide ranging influences like Casanova, for instance, on our view of sexual morality. And that can set the ball rolling and the followers go further. And then it just amplifies into something that sort of spirals out of control. And that becomes, I think, very confusing on the Holocaust thing. And you can elaborate on that. But on the Holocaust thing, I had a mini sermon there, Andrew. <laughs> the The thing that I w- want to ask you about that is when reading your book, as I was thinking about that yesterday, too. How do you talk about history when. I had a Holocaust survivor come to my grade school and speak to my class. You can go to the Indiana Historical Society right now and sit and talk with Eva Kaur in a hologram as she describes her experiences. We have an abundance. There are more Holocaust museums in the United States than there are in Israel or anywhere else in the world. It, it, the history is very abundant here because as a child, I'm 40, as a child, it was never forget this will never happen again. How do we live in a post-truth world where the history is readily available, but it's just not reaching people because it's not in their algorithms? How do we navigate that? Yeah, that is that's a huge question, and it's one that affects us in probably much more. Many of us who would be appalled that the Holocaust is up for debate might nevertheless swallow a lot of nonsense for on other issues. This is, as in there's no one who's probably completely immune to this. You're right, it is driven very much by algorithms. I do think that the I think the church institutionally has a role here in I think pastors have to be very mindful of this in the way that we preach and lead, that we are not being discipled by our feed and that we are not excessively screen consumptive people. And that if we are for our work or for connectivity reasons, we do need to be engaged online as a significant part of what we do, which I feel to some measure I do that we we have to fight for the ability at the very least to to empathize by being able to see the hear the story as it's told by somebody who doesn't agree with us and i think just there's some consciousness raising that we can all do with each other I hope even this conversation is a very tiny part of that where to the effect that the sources and the claims that are held as being extremely in high, in extremely high regard in some sections of the internet or just popular society are extremely low credibility and that we just need to make sure that we can tell the difference between reliable and unreliable. We effectively, we all need to be historians to some degree. And we need to do that scrupulously, particularly when we've got a very high stake in believing one version of events against the other. It's much harder to persuade someone to be skeptical about something they really want to believe. Um, and that you know the saying goes that if you hear something you want to believe, you think, can I believe it? And if you hear something you don't want to believe, you think, must I believe it? In other words, your standard of proof changes dramatically according to what you would hope was the case. And I think even just awareness of that is not on its own. That doesn't solve your problem, but it makes you slightly more, slightly more, it makes you doubt your doubts. It makes you slightly more skeptical of your skepticism at times. I think that, to be honest, that is a bigger challenge in your nation than mine because I think we still have, or everyone would agree, but I think something that very, I think that approximates very well to a non-partisan news service, which to my knowledge doesn't really exist in in North America, certainly in the US, that all of the sources of news have a political stance. Now, obviously, in a sense, the BBC does in Britain as well, but it's chartered to be neutral and it has to fight very hard for that. And I think generally does a very good job. So I think it's probably harder where you are 
because of, particularly on news. I think we just have to be skeptical of our social media feeds and we have to understand those things. But we also, I think particularly, we just owe it to our, our kids and our churches and those over whom we have some influence to tell at least the stories on the big things, not even just on the sense of moral judgments like communism is bad, those sorts of things, but even just this event, the, these events happen. These are 10 events that have profoundly shaped. This is what actually happened in Reconstruction America. This is These are some as painful. It doesn't reflect well on many of my ancestors, but this is what we did with African-Americans in this period. This is what happened in slavery. This is what happened in the Second World War. This is what happened with Japanese people who moved to America straight after the Second World War. This is what happened with, not so that you just endlessly gain self-loathing, but you need to tell those stories alongside. And these are some of the really great things we did. This is what we did in 1944, or in my case, 1940. This is what we did. So you don't just have a, a narrative of self-loathing. Yeah, this is what happened in industrialization. This is how many people have been lifted out of poverty through it. This is how China's got richer in the last 30 years and how many people have been saved from starvation. And you can, you've got to be able to tell both of those stories without collapsing them all into a, the West is terrible and everything we've ever done is just extorted and killed people. Or everything the West done is great and we've just been a force of light to all the world. We have to tell nuanced stories. And actually, I think the Bible really helps here. I would say that because when you read, if, if you read Israel's story through the lens of Psalm 105, you'll get one version. You read it through the lens of Psalm 106, you'll get a very different take on the exact same narrative of the same period of Israel's history. And you have to be able to do both. You have to say, look at what God's done. He's been faithful. He's worked good things through us. And look at the number of times you've sinned and failed and how much we need a deliverer. I think so. you may have said somewhere, I think maybe the podcast, the story of Israel in Genesis didn't just include all the good bits. Not at all. Yeah, it's profound about If you read these narratives, you think, oh my goodness, what a morally complicated character Jacob is. And he's like the founder of Israel. What a morally complex character Judah is. Even probably to a degree, Joseph, certainly. Abraham, Sarah, Rebecca. Is Rachel a goodie or a baddie? Is Leah a goodie or is Adam? You just go into these, Noah even. You think these guys are the heroes of the faith and they're very complex. And so I think to do justice to a biblical account, we have to tell our own narrative, particularly on big things, issues of economics, of race, of relationship between the sexes, some of these things which have become pressing in the modern world. We just have to know our history a bit better than we often do, I think. Certainly, as again, speaking as a white English evangelical guy, this is something we, that doesn't come naturally to us, and we have to be able to read, tell a nuanced account with the positives and the negatives. So I'd love for you to tease out, in our, in our last question here, I was listening to the Gospel Bound podcast, and you were talking with Colin Hansen about the future of the church and the great de-churching. And here in America, we have a strong civil society sector, and 1% decrease of Christians giving every year is just a massive impact on suffering in America, for instance, as people are leaving the church. And you talked about this is an 80-year process in Europe, in England, but this is like an eight-year process in America. And that struck me because I hadn't thought about that. And is that why there is so much anxiety in the American church, so much conversation about, oh my gosh, we're losing, the culture is going away, we're... What lessons can we learn from the European church as Americans as this process of secularization starts to increase? Oh, yeah. So I think I overstated deliberately. I'm saying eight years and 80 years are clearly it's, that's me off the top of my head, really. But I, I do think there's a truth in there, which is that 
the if you were to do a graph of the public perception of credibility of and respectability of Christian beliefs in North America, it would remain higher for much longer and then drop quite suddenly in the years around, from the years around 2015, somewhere like that. Now, somewhere in that sort of the flurry of change between the sort of Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too, election of Donald Trump, that period, which was very turbulent in your country. And in the last seven or eight years, I think it's dropped a lot. Whereas in Europe, that would have been a much more gradual slide. And so it's taken much longer, but it means that the church is less, as you put it, has been less anxious. I think the church has not struggled to the same degree with its kind of, gosh, we've suddenly been ejected from cultural prestige to a place of real marginality. That's how it feels to many, certainly in the white evangelical church in both of our countries. Whereas, But in mine, that's just taken a much longer journey. And we have a state church and it's been, it started earlier and it's taken much longer. I think the reason, much of the reason for that, I may have, you may have heard me talk to Colin about this, is I think that's actually connected with the Cold War in a way. I think the Cold War provided a sort of a moral darkness light Christian narrative to the sort of the respectable center of American identity for much longer than it did in uh, Europe because of our particular place in that. I think our relations with the Middle East are a factor as well. So there's various reasons why, but I think one of the things that can help is I think you can see a church that in part has lost its moral influence at a it, it's it's lost its reach it's lost i i make a comment as a pastor in my city and nobody no one writes it up in the paper no one cares in in an equivalent context in north america it might well be i find i go to america and i'm more likely in some context to be recognized there than i am in my own city like it's just because of the the impact of christianity and, and public figures but i think one of the things you can that that could obscure is that although the reach of christianity is much larger and it is being lost much quicker in North America. But one of the benefits of losing the reach is that you can actually gain in depth what you lose in width. And that actually, because it's more costly to be a Christian, it, the church doesn't the, the church doesn't disintegrate. The church doesn't disappear. What happens is people just the commitment needed to be a Christian might go up. And in some parts of North America, that's probably not a bad thing. That it can still, to this day, be too easy to be a churchgoer. And there's a lot of people can go to church and as we were just discussing, might not be being discipled in their values, the way they think about various other groups in society, the way they think about money, the way they think about history. They might not actually have been discipled very deeply at all because it's too easy to be a Christian. And there are some benefits to, and there's some losses as well. We've got to be very honest about that. But let's say this is, Jesus is going to build his church. This doesn't, it's not like God left and forgot about the North American church. And so some of the, sometimes almost hear the panic isn't warranted, but it can be a painful process. And I think I would hope that there is some encouragement for North America. To be honest, even speaking about the US is a, is you're always generalizing because this has been the case in San Francisco for a long time, right? In New York, but it probably isn't the case for many of the people listening to this. And in that case, I think it can help to look at Europe and other places and say the church survives. It might be smaller. It might be more rigorous in certain ways and less rigorous in other ways and less impactful in some ways and more in others. But I think there is hope because ultimately the spirit is with us and Jesus is building his church and God is sovereign. But it can be a, a painful time. And I think I mainly make that comparison to reassure my North American brothers and sisters that if they are feeling discombobulated, that's because they're going through something much more sudden than happened on my side of the Atlantic. Yeah, so through the small window of Premier Unbelievable where you've done some debates, it's a podcast network, I guess you'd call it. 
you see an intellectual weight in the the English church in European circles. Things are a little more defined, a little more crisper than maybe some of where we're at with mega churches in the United States. And I was raised on Christian radio here, nurtured at the the teat of people who have now fallen from grace <laughs> and got away from some of that intellectual, I guess, apologetics, right? We turned inward in a very romantic way, as you described it, and stopped looking outward. And there seems to be a movement with th- things like your book where there's a little bit more, let's do a little more cultural apologetics and look to England and, and to folks like yourself can help guide us a little bit in this secular world. Well, it's, it's very kind of you to say so. And I, I would just, I would want to return the compliment when it came to biblical and systematic theology, where actually, if you look through the people who are doing, I, I think you're right. I personally think the people who are doing the best work at the moment, many of those doing the best work in cultural apologetics now are either from or ministering in not just Britain, but Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, places as in Anglophone people who are not in the USA are doing a lot of work because that's just our, our context. That's what we're in every time we preach a sermon or disciple someone. But I think the reverse is also true, that I think the, what the American church does incomparably well is the sort of seminary culture and investment in heavy theological resources, which means that almost every commentary I've got on my shelves is written by someone in the USA. So when people say, so I think we, we need each other, I think they, hey, explain the world's to the church and help us place where we are and what post-Christian evangelism looks like, a lot of the people who are really helping me in that are fellow Brits, Australians, Canadians. But if someone says, hey, I need a mighty big book on Romans or Isaiah, or as I do go through my devotions all the time, they're almost all written by North Americans. So I think the strengths are just in different places and we need one another. All right. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I really appreciated the book. The book is Remaking the World. How 1776 created the post-Christian West. Andrew Wilson, the link is in the bio. Please go get it. Where can people follow you if they'd like to learn more about you? I am on Twitter at AJWTheology, if anyone is on Twitter. And our church is King's Church London. So that's where my sermons and preaching my website and contacting Yeah, those probably those two places. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show. We greatly appreciate you joining us as well. And if you learned something, please share it. And we'll see you again here on The Chris Spangle Show. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.